Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Part 2 of the Ignoble Prizes 2020 special, we talk about insects and crocodiles. Now, crocodiles are related to dinosaurs and birds, but do they also sing songs to attract mates? We'll find out more. Plus, what happens with fear of spiders, and does studying insects help with your fear of spiders, or are you actually even scared of because you're familiar with insects, the cousins of arachnids? We're going to talk again about the year's most exciting scientific prize, the Ig Nobel Prizes, which is awarded annually in September, running all the way back since 1991. Now, the prize is awarded and sponsored effectively by the Annals of Improbable Research and the Harvard Radcliffe Society of Physics Students and the Harvard Radcliffe Society of Science Fiction Association. Now, these organisations help run the Ig Nobel Prizes, which recognise scientific achievement for doing research that makes people laugh and then think. Or another way to think about it, research into questions that nobody else thought of asking that are kind of interesting, but also can pose some serious insights into something that not a lot of other people may have even bothered to think about in the first place. We've talked already last week about the prize for physics, which was awarded to some researchers from Australia who got some worms drunk on ethanol and shook them at particular frequencies. And first prize we're going to look at is not for physics, but is kind of related. This is the prize for acoustics, and the winners of the prize were Stephen Rebar, Takeshi Nishimura, Judith Janish, Mark Robertson, Tekmish Fitch, for investigating resonant frequencies, in particular resonant frequencies as they can be found in alligators in a zoo. And communication between alligators and what they can tell us about relationships with dinosaurs, with birds and how different creatures can communicate information over long distances using nothing but vocalizations. And the way in which they did this is what got them particular attention because the best way to explore these resonant frequencies that they determined, well, that was to give one particular alligator a lot of helium. So we're gonna dive into this story and try and figure out why alligators breathing in some helium could help us shed insights into the way information can be transferred just by the sound and the particular resonant frequencies in those vocalizations. familiar with birdsong. Now birds can communicate via song to tell a number of different things. Sometimes they're used to demark territory, warn other potential competitors to stay away. Sometimes it's used to transmit information about predators in the area or other times it's used to attract mates. Though this range of vocalization employed by birds can be quite pleasant to listen to and can be quite important to actually the functioning of that particular species. And even though it may not seem obvious But birds and crocodiles actually employ similar mechanisms to each other in terms of vocalization. And this makes sense if you think about it because, well, birds and crocodiles share a common ancestor, basically also with dinosaurs. You can all trace that root of development back through. A way to think about a bird is a slightly evolved 
more dinosaur that had managed to stick around and fly pretty easily. And a crocodile is, well, some cousin of the dinosaurs that managed to survive what killed off the main dinosaurs and stays singing around in the swamps. But at its core, they both share similar vocal responses and abilities. And though you may not have heard it as easily, if you've spent any time in Australia or one of the large wildlife zoos like the Australia Zoo up on the Gold Coast, you may have seen some crocodiles and alligators, or perhaps in Florida or in Louisiana in the United States. But crocodiles and alligators can actually make a lot of noise. They make a lot of vocal bellowing, actually quite loudly, and it's especially loud during mating season. Now, that's particularly interesting because it means that crocodiles are using this bellowing noise to help communicate information to potential mates. Mostly because we can tell that by the fact that the bellowing gets much, much louder when it approaches time for mating season. So okay, crocodiles and alligators, they like to do these big bellowing to try and talk and communicate over long distances to other crocodiles in the swamp to attract potential mates. They can't do big extravagant displays like you would say a peacock because, well, they're in a swamp. Crocodiles are typically quite submerged in murky water. So how do they communicate what they look like or what makes them an attractive mate? This was really what the researchers are trying to understand. Now, obviously, an important factor that may be interesting for a crocodile to advertise is, well, their size. It's one of the things that a lot of creatures do try to accentuate during mating season. So could these cries and these bellows actually be trying to communicate something about the size of the crocodile or alligator? And that's basically the idea that these researchers had. They went to Florida's St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park and they took one female Chinese alligator that was at that zoo. Now they quarantined that in, they quarantined that alligator away from the rest, maybe 40 or so American alligators in a nearby enclosure. And in the quarantined area that they put this one female Chinese alligator in, they actually started to adjust the mix of oxygen. So the alligator was bellowing off to its compatriots nearby quite normally. But then they started to dial up the helium mix of that particular quarantined area. And that effectively caused the air to change and thus also the vocal range of the alligator to change and this enabled them to investigate whether or not there was actually any change in behavior or response from the male alligators and because these alligators have been used to talking to each other from far away basically in separate enclosures they could actually record and play back the bellows of the male alligators and the female alligator could respond on cue because she was so used to this call and response between the two of them so that enabled them to do a really controlled experiment where they measured and assessed and recorded her bellows in normal air and when the air was mixed with helium. And as you expect, if you've ever sucked in the air from a helium balloon, the alligator's resonant frequency, so-called formants, actually shifted up from around 400 hertz, as one of the base frequencies in normal air, up to 800 hertz. And then for a second form and a second resonant frequency, shifting from around 1600 all the way up to 3300. And this is almost a doubling of the resonant frequencies produced by the alligator. Now, of course, this makes sense if you think about it because, well, when we have helium, our voices get higher as well. But what actually enables us to do that is the fact that our 
vocal tract actually has some certain resonant frequencies and the air inside our vocal tract is being mixed with helium which is causing this vibration change the resonant frequency by the fact that helium is present is actually changed that is the resonance inside our vocal now vocal tract is effectively almost a bit of a speaker box an important part of amplifying our signal our voice and any kind of vocal cords vocal tract are essentially doing the same thing in birds but now it's also been shown to be doing the same thing in alligators and crocodiles as well and just like any other space you can have resonant frequencies where sound is particularly amplified or resonant in that area and that's what gets shifted by changing the properties of that space that room by adding in the helium into the mix so if that space changes then okay if it's got more space to resonate or to vibrate or less space to resonate and vibrate then you'll change that resonant frequency got a wide wood covered speaker box well that'll sound and resonate very differently to a small plastic one the materials and the shape of that space have changed much in the same way as you have a crocodile with a very large body and a very large vocal tract area well their resonant frequencies will be very different to a smaller one or perhaps that of a bird so size is effectively being transmitted via the frequencies of oscillation here from the alligators when the alligator resonates their vocal tract and the air inside it and produces these loud bellows they're actually communicating pieces of information just by the certain frequency or tone that they're producing that information tells other crocodiles around them just how big they are effectively their voice characteristics are revealing to fellow swamp dwellers whether or not they're an attractive mate or at least in the eyes of fellow crocodiles and alligators and this is quite similar to what birds do as well but probably more important in a swamp where you can't easily be seen now great this helps us understand how crocodiles and alligators communicate and transmit information about body size just via vocalization but it also gives us this insight into the common ancestor of birds and crocodilians the dinosaurs how they would have also used their vocal cords to cry to bellow to communicate to other dinosaurs around them key information like their size and the kind of resonant sounds that they would have made as well so next time you're picturing a dinosaur it may not look like a crocodile or leathery and thick hide it may have had feathers may have had bright plumage but definitely was vocalizing maybe not a bird song but probably some guttural bellows like an alligator or a crocodile now this paper was actually published by Reba Nishimura Janish Robertson and Fitch in the Journal of Experimental Biology and it's recognized now this year for its achievement to helping us deeper understand the resonant frequencies and acoustics of dinosaurs birds and alligators Now, if you live in Australia, you will be very used to seeing a wide variety of different types of spiders or arachnids scattered around your house, your backyard, you name it. Spiders are a fact of life for us. But one of the things that 
people can find most terrifying is in fact spiders. Arachnophobia is a serious issue for many people. And there are many things maybe to dislike about spiders. The number of legs they have, the way they move, the fact that they're dangerous. There could all be different things that lead to people's fears. But why would someone who studies insects for a living, an entomologist, be also scared of spiders? Now, before you start yelling, yes, I understand that insects studied by an entomologist are very different to arachnids, which is what spiders are, but that's exactly what Richard Vita was investigating and published in the journal American Entomologist as a feature article all the way back in fall 2013. Now, Vita was investigating the interesting fact that many entomologists, despite the fact that they study insects, not spiders, were more scared than, I guess, the background populace of spiders. Now, why would that be surprising? Well, if you think about it, there isn't that much difference between an insect and an arachnid. Well, if you think about it, they both are arthropods. They both have a shittiness shell on their outside. They're invertebrates. They don't have, you know, bones in their bodies. They also have pairs of legs. Now, in an insect's case, three pairs of, to make six total legs, and in an arachnid's case, four pairs to make eight total legs. That's being one of the differences between an arachnid and an insect. Another, of course, is they have the segmented bodies and the segmented legs, but the segmented bodies in an insect are in three parts, whereas in an arachnid are in two. So when you think about it, an arachnid and an insect aren't the same, but they are similar. And Insects do things like scurry about, hang out in weird spots, can move quite surprisingly, and can also look a bit disgusting. All these things that often people say are scary traits for spiders. With all of that considered, why would a person who studies insects day in, day out, and works with them closely, handles them all the time? Despite all of that, why would they still be scared of spiders? which, okay, yes, aren't an insect, but is that extra two legs really enough to tip it over to being so psychologically scary? And that's exactly what Vita was trying to get to the bottom of. And he conducted a detailed survey of over 40 participants, and there was a couple of criteria for them. They had to be or either working as or consider themselves to be entomologists. They had to have, at some point in their career or life, handled whole-bodied arthropods while they're alive. So that means handling either insect or an arachnid or one of the other arthropods and handle them in the live form. So, you know, got them crawling all over them or at least in some form. And they had to have had negative feelings towards spiders. And so using these criteria, Vita was able to investigate exactly what was going on and through a detailed survey. For example, one of the questionnaires looked at what traits of a spider do they dislike more than others? Ones that scored pretty strongly as universally disliked were the way they move, the, the unexpected motion or fast motion, the, the fact that they bite, and the fact that they have many legs. Now, this kind of fast, unexpected movement with lots of legs and having a bit of a bite, that could describe an ant or any other type of insect as well. So it's interesting that the traits, the spider traits, that the entomologists most called out as being the most scary well, that often is a similar overlap to what you would consider for an insect. Now, they also did a bit of a cross-reference study to over 30 other animals to sort of see if there were other creatures that rated highly on the fear or dislike score. Now, no surprises out of the categories of different types of animals. The ones that was disliked the least were harmless insects like a ladybug or a butterfly. 
Even the bee scored comparatively low, actually better than a dog. Some people had some slight fears of dogs. But the fear and dislike score gets really quite high on the other end. And as you expect, things like scorpions, maggots, rats actually were more disliked than even things like eels, sharks, slugs and cockroaches. But towards the top were the big three, were mosquitoes, spiders and ticks as being the things that these entomologists disliked in terms of the animal kingdom the most. So the spiders were up there with the second most disliked creature. And if you think about it, a tick is kind of like the scariest form of a spider. Small and particularly creepy and unsettling. And that's where the score was so high. Now, this study seemed to align with the most prior work, which is in arachnophobic studies, which seemed to suggest that people started to develop this fear of spiders at a young age, probably well before someone had considered a career in entomology. So the entomologists who were scared of spiders seemed to be more or less in line with the general populace. Which means even though they spent a lot of their time handling, dealing with, touching insects with a bunch of different legs, fast-moving, unexpected motions, creepy body patterns, and generally things that many people would find unsettling, that familiarity with insects doesn't carry over to arachnids. They can still be quite scared of them for exactly the same reasons. The one thing was noted in the study is that many of them were aware that their fear was illogical based on the actual profession and experience, they still somehow couldn't move past it. Which just says that the fear of spiders seems to be more difficult to overcome than a lifetime of working with insects or casual exposure to things with lots of legs. But that two extra legs really does seem to be the breaking point, even for many entomologists. They just can't seem to get over those extra two legs and into the world of spiders, or at least enough to overcome decades of lived experience where they have a fear of these creatures. So really, Vita's gone to show that despite entomologists working with creatures that the general populace is often also scared of or finds repulsive and disgusting and to the same way as spiders, the entomologists themselves view those extra two legs as just a bridge too far and unable to overcome any other childhood fears of spiders that they may have. And for this research, Vita was awarded an ignoble prize entomology, which is quite a surprise for an arachnologist to receive an entomology award. But nevertheless, it's a great recognition of an interesting study about fear of spiders and how it compares to those who study insects. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From entomologists with a fear of spiders to the sounds that crocodiles make to attract mates. All this week and more, we've co-hitted on some Ig Nobel Prizes in 2020. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>